0: The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 73 of The Things We All Carry. This week, I offer up my conversation with Andy Pantalus. Andy is the District 4 Vice President for the IAFF. For those of you who are non fire related listeners, the IAFF is the International Association of Firefighters. Andy was elected to his position in 2016 and he represents the local affiliates of Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, and D.C. Andy is also the President of Local 1619, Prince George's County, Maryland, as well as a Battalion Chief in Prince George's County. He's been with his department since 1997. We spent about an hour and a half one morning speaking via Zoom. The conversation ranges from mental health to retirement to cancer prevention with a few other topics scattered in there. This kind of conversation is helpful but not exhaustive. We could have spent an episode alone on each topic. Perhaps a deeper dive into a few subjects is warranted in the future. Feel free to reach out to me with any questions or comments concerning this episode or any other. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at thethingsweallcarry or email the thingsweallcarry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Joining me today is Andy Pantelis, and you guys better know him as the Vice President of the International. And what I want to do is I'll kind of open it up to him to tell you, you know, where he came from, how he got into what what he's doing, and how he got into the role he is today. So we'll go from there and just say good morning. How are you?
1: Great. Thanks. Good morning, Stack. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, you, you said I am the Vice President of the International Association of Firefighters. Uh, you know, we'll talk about some of uh, those things today. I also serve as the, the president of the Prince George's County Local 1619 Prince George's County Marital and Local, and I'm a battalion chief in Prince George's County Fire Department as well, concurrently. So where'd you grow up? So originally, I'm, I'm from New York, and uh, I left New York to uh, come to the area, go to the University of Maryland, go to college. Like most of us from New York and New Jersey, we come down here, move to the region, go to school, and uh, you can never get rid of us. We, uh, we stay. Sometimes we, we overstay our welcome, but I've been here uh, now for the last, uh, we'll say, 26 years uh, in Maryland. So, still call yourself a New Yorker? You know, I, I do, but I think some of my family and friends from New York would uh would argue against that by this point. And I've certainly lost the accent. Then I, I guess I need to also ask, is it,
0: it match your Yankees?
1: So I was a Mets, Jets, Islanders fan growing up. Okay, it's a we need trio.
0: We can possibly still be friends.
1: That that works.
0: <laughs> Anything Yankees, I had to, I had to kind of balk at. So I hear you. All right, so you you get to this position. Why do you want this position? Why do you want to be so involved? Why do you want to be up doing what you're doing?
1: Well, my current position with the international, I was, it's an elected position and, uh, they are elected, uh, every four years and around 2015, the, uh, the then vice president, my predecessor had announced that he'd be retiring from his position. And it's, uh, something at the IAFF that I looked at and I looked at the, the leadership, the representing the IAFF and representing our members at the time. And I felt that uh, while they were all outstanding labor leaders in their own right and had their own levels of experience, that uh, just about every single one of them on the entire IFF executive board were retired, or in their 60s, some in their 70s. And that, you know, we didn't really have great representation of the rank and file uh, of, the, of the men and women that are doing the job on the street today, of the issues that are most important to us. Uh, and so I ran on a platform of bringing that perspective of you know a younger guy, uh, a newer generation, and somebody who's still active in their department and in their local union to our internationals, so that they'd have a better idea of what our needs are on the ground, what our members need, what our members deserve. Are you seeing that kind of change now,
0: though? Are, are, so you 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 ran on this platform. I'm I'm going to assume that other people have noticed that in the past, and and have they thrown their names in the ring? And are you starting to see that? It kind of more towards boots on the ground, being in, involved in the level you're at?
1: Exactly. You know, and in 2016, we probably had the biggest change in leadership on the IFF executive board, And I think we probably reduced, brought down the average age by about 15 years uh, in terms of uh, how old those members are serving. That uh, We saw that in some other districts. Uh, and at that time, who is then General Secretary Treasurer Ed Kelly elected to that role and now um, General President Ed Kelly? You know, he's just a few years older than me. He's still active on the job in in Boston, rounding ladder seventeen. So we started to see that shift, and it it really proved to be very interesting, an interesting time at the IFF.
0: So you you kind of you kind of i I'll use the word revolutionize. I mean, you kind of bring that age down, so it's going to change an outlook on on where this union wants to go then.
1: Absolutely. In in all of our areas from, you know, the services that we provide to our affiliate leaders to, you know, to what our members expect, what our members need, you know, what our members think their union should look like and what it should be and how it should serve them. And that crosses all the spectrums from politics to the resources that we offer, whether it's behavioral health resources, collective bargaining resources, um, fighting for benefits and, you know, our lobbying and legislative actions and efforts on Capitol Hill or in our state capitals, you know, there's a different perspective with each new generation in the fire service. And that perspective needs to be represented.
0: How do you sell the union to young guys coming into the departments who
1: may have no idea what labor does? You know, that's a good question. I, I take a little bit of a different approach because for so many years, you would hear people, you know, kind of pound their fist and say, you know, that you need to belong to the union because, you know, we, we need strength in numbers. We need to have that solidarity and, you know, or you're a scab if you're not. And it was, there were, there were so many negative connotations with how people were promoting, you know, our union, uh, some locals, some jurisdictions did it better than others. But the perspective and approach I always took is that in addition to all the services that we are expected to provide... Our members need to see like a a return on investment, every paycheck they're they're paying those dues or once a month, they're paying those dues at per capita, sending it to their local, sending it to the state, sending it up to the international. And if we're not doing a good job showing what that return on investment is, you know, we're, we're not only failing our organization, but we're failing you, we're failing our members. So I place a strong emphasis right away in, in recruit school about what we actually can do for you, where we're going, um, tangible benefits and tangible products and services that, that we can provide. And that's that's not, you know, it's not a one size fits all across our entire international because we have so many unique departments with so many, uh, you know, differences in the laws that, that govern how we operate, but you know, our members need to know, and it's not just sign this form, sign up here, you know, be a good brother or sister, or a good firefighter and, and join the union. It's gotta be more than that. And if, and if we don't do that, we are failing. So I've placed a very big emphasis and our team's have placed a big emphasis on, on trying to do that with our, with our current and our future members.
0: It's, uh, it's weird because I, just sitting here and hearing you say that you, you kind of go through your head, you're like, okay, Virginia is this, this Right to work states, kind of right to work light, I guess. Now that they've yep. instituted some collective bargaining, and, and departments are trying to figure out how to do that, then you have other states that are just full on union states, and then other states that have no collective bargaining. And, and And I I can't imagine at the at the national level how you affect change in all of those states at once.
1: It's it's a it's a great challenge. So the region that I represent at the IFF, uh, I'm the vice president for Virginia, Maryland, West Virginia. Delaware, Washington, DC, and Pennsylvania, and you hit the nail on the head. The, the spectrum for what bargaining rights, what labor laws are across those five different states in the district vary significantly. You come from a, a state like Pennsylvania, you go to Pennsylvania where they have some of the strongest labor laws for firefighters with guaranteed collective bargaining, guaranteed binding arbitration, making sure that workers have a voice at the table to as you mentioned it, you know, Virginia is collective bargaining light up until the Dillon law was repealed a couple of years ago. It was the second most anti-worker, anti-labor state in the nation. Uh, so we've been chipping away at that. So there isn't a one size fits all. And that's where some of our divisions, we have such talented staff. We've got a great team at headquarters, both in DC and in Ottawa that really focus on taking a regional approach or a state approach to. The issues that are most important to our members, because there's only so much we could do at the federal level. There's only so much that we could pass through Congress that would really have um, more than be more than just a paper tiger. Really have have an impact on all of our members. So that's why that local and statewide approach is is so important to us.
0: How do how does the union how do you target politicians? And and the reason I ask this because we we all know who's favorable to, to, to labor and who's not, but, but there's so many interests in the fire department or for, for, for firefighters in general, that, that it, it's antithetical to them to say, I want to back a, a pro labor candidate when that pro labor candidate doesn't back what my social issues or my, or, or fiscal issues or whatever it is. So how does
1: the union go that about? That is definitely what looks-
0: Yeah. How do, how do you go about balancing that?
1: So that's, it's such a challenge because politics, not only in our union, but just, you know, in society, it's so polarizing. Um, and, you know, in some jurisdictions, it's really easy to make that decision. It's very, very clear who's supporting the firefighters, who's supporting labor. And, uh, you know, each, each local jurisdiction, each local affiliate of the IFF has their own local autonomy, I'm sorry, local autonomy to make endorsements that at best suit their needs and their goals and objectives. But when we're just talking about the IAFF and our international, our, our, our national, you know, federal type of endorsements, that's, uh, you know, for incumbents, it's a little easier. We look at voting records. Voting records generally don't lie on our issues. Um, similar to other labor organizations, you can make a report card of of where they are on issues such as collective bargaining or healthcare for retirees, you know, elimination of the, the windfall, the windfall elimination protection for social security, cancer presumption, PTSD or PTSI support. Um, it's really easy to see that and that, that record, but new aspiring politicians coming up the, uh, you know, coming up the pipeline, uh, that's not so easy. So. Things such as questionnaires and, you know, getting commitments from elected officials or aspiring elected officials to push our legislative initiatives. Um, that's kind of how our process works. But when you talk about the the struggle of balancing what our members, other beliefs are, you know, the IFF, you know, to me in my role may define most of my life because that's, that's what I do, but for our average firefighter, you know, most are thankful to have a union. They believe in their union. They'll help out if they can, but everybody has busy lives. You know, not everybody has the ability to to make that commitment to to work on issues that are important to our members. Just, you know, family lives, two jobs. We all know overtime, forced holdovers, work schedules, work-life balance. is just, um, there's so much out there. But I deviated a little bit, but back to the the, how we balance when our, when our members are, you know, disenfranchised with, with who we support for a, a particular elected office. Uh, I always explain that our union's never going to tell anyone who to vote for. We're never going to try and bully somebody to vote for somebody. I view our role and responsibility as it's, it's our job to educate you on the issues that are important to the IAFF and the union and where that elected official or aspiring elected official stands on those issues, then it's your job as a, as a union member, as a firefighter, as a citizen to just take that Well, we could call it a report card or recommendation. That's what an endorsement is a recommendation and then balance it off of what else is important in your life. You know, you may be. Um, most of our members are are card-carrying members of the NRA. That's important to them. 2 A rights are important to our membership. Uh, So they'll look at the IFF endorsement. They'll look at the the NRA endorsement or other organizations that they may belong to. It could be as simple as who their church is supporting. And it's our members' responsibility to just look at all those cards and say, this is more important to me, and that's how I'm going to vote. Um, I think it's very important to just make sure that we don't tell anybody who to vote for. Make sure our members know that. It's just really something that, you know, we need to provide an education on fire service issues and that's it. We don't really delve into the social issues. Sometimes they can cross on a parallel, but typically not. You mentioned that
0: one of the reasons, well, main reason you kind of ran for this position was... To, to get new blood, younger blood in, what's it like to try and write the course of a, of an organization as large as the, as the national or the international?
1: So uh, David and Goliath comes to mind sometimes. Um, it it definitely takes uh, takes a culture change and that culture change starts at that leadership level. And you have to have a group of open-minded, you know, objective elected officers that will evaluate and look at all of those perspectives and be open to change. You know, th- that's the biggest thing in the fire service, the hardest thing in the fire service change and, mm-hmm. and affecting change. Um, and that's not, not just at uh, in our fire department organizations or across an entire large or small fire department that even starts at the top at the IFS. And we certainly had our challenges uh, with a lot of those changes uh, over, I would say between 2019 and 2022, uh, we, we really had a, a restructuring and leadership, some new elected leadership at the top of the organization, but a tremendous amount of internal changes just in how, you know, we treat our, our members per capita money and how that is utilized, what programs they're assigned to, because it is, it's your investment. It's our members' investment and people who lose sight of that. You know, that's where we start having problems. When you, when you lose sight that our job is to, you know, provide a service or multiple services, provide support, help our members or their families in their utmost time of need or on, on just day-to-day things that our members expect from us. When you lose sight of who you're there to serve and represent, that's where we start spiraling. But I think we have a, um, our current IFF executive board and leadership. We have a pretty outstanding team over a pretty diverse team of, in terms of perspectives and backgrounds, age. We do have a younger representative executive board. And I think we're starting to really do some, you know, some new, great things, uh, at the international.
0: You and I went over a list of questions or a list of topics we might discuss. Sure. And, and I think the biggest one, and I can't, I have to start with the biggest one that this podcast is, is focused on is mental health. Uh, what does the international what's the stance if there's a stance on mental health? And I know that sounds ridiculous, but in the last, uh, it hasn't been until the last few years that there's been an actual stance on mental health across the board. So how did, how is this, how is the approach now from the international towards mental health? And, you know, I I know that we have the center of excellence and that's, that's union related, but
1: outside of that, what is the approach to mental health? So I think I, I, you really hit it, it. I would say it was around 2015. Uh, the IFF has a quarterly magazine that goes out to all of our, our affiliates. And there was um, a cover feature um, and a lengthy article about uh, PTSD, PTSI coming out of the shadows. Um, it was a very powerful cover. It was a very, very powerful article. And when that dropped, the switchboards at the IFF started lighting up from our members because it was really the first time that the IFF, uh, you know, front and center put a focus on the behavioral health and mental health of our members and the challenges uh, of what our members deal with. It had always been done on the periphery through some course offerings, um, you know, a couple of seminar topics, but really delving into it and making it on the forefront was that. And when that happened, you know, the IFF, we, we realized that, you know, this is a this is a much bigger issue um, than I think anyone could have anticipated. And when you start looking at some of the universities that we partnered with, and there's studies and surveys that the percentage of our members that, um, one, suffer from some form of you know behavioral illness or co-addiction is staggering. The number of members who have contemplated suicide is staggering, who have a what we'll call an escape plan. Um, those really sounded a lot of alarms and we knew that we needed to do something more. The, the center of excellence that you mentioned, that's the behavioral health, um, treatment and recovery center. That's uh, located in upper Marlboro, Maryland. There's a second one that's going to be opening on the west coast, um, this summer, uh, in California. That was step number one, to be able to create a safe space for our members, because we were seeing that our members were finally starting to become more comfortable and more at ease talking about their struggles, their challenges, how to cope, coping mechanisms, um, and what behavioral or mental health disorders they may be suffering from changing that stigma that, you know, we, I, I kind of came up in the fire service right at the transition where, you know, Hazing was kind of going out the door, but, you know, it was, suck it up was the mentality, um, with, with anything that we saw or any struggle that we encountered. It was, there was a, a stigma that, you know, may still exist in some places to this day, but I think we're, we're really seeing that those barriers and those walls are being broken down. But, but that stigma that existed, it was, it was real and it, it carried on to the culture and the fire service for, for many, many years. But those centers were, were step number one. And then concurrently was changing how we provide, you know, support for our members who are struggling. And for years, we saw either the EAP model, the employee assistance program model, or the SISM model for incidents, the critical incident, stress management model, and those models, while you can pick certain benefits out of each of them. Overall, uh, they were failing our members, Um, and a lot of that was due to, when it comes to EAP, distrust, association with management, being concerned or having fear that if the department or, or your jurisdiction knows that you're suffering from A, B, or C, that somehow that would hurt you in your employment. And then also the, the stigma still, do I feel comfortable talking about this at work with my colleagues? So we shifted to a peer support model, you know, firefighters helping firefighters. It's an, it's an active listening model in terms of support. It's a model where, uh, where we are able to provide resources and referrals and recommendations to our members who need them. But the most important part that I mentioned is the listening component. Um, and this I'd say equally important is that it's another firefighter. It's, you know, not a clinician, even though we have some phenomenal clinicians that are supporting our peer teams, you know, our, our it's hard enough to get our members to go to a doctor for a checkup, you know, that, you know, it's a, to get them to go into, to an office and lay on a couch, uh, uh, for 45 minutes and, or an hour and, and the fear of, of judgment or. Or pouring out to a to a stranger that doesn't understand what what our members what we've encountered what we've seen that wasn't working. So that that peer support model was was just key and instrumental for us.
0: I think the the other part about the you know SISM or the EAP is that it's reactive instead of that proactive approach. Where I think peer support can be more of a proactive approach. At least if you're in the station with guys and and you're just staying in tune with your guys. You know, it, that, so I, that that creates a. All right, I'm going to notice the flight changes before they boil over.
1: Absolutely, I mean, you give the like the frog and the boiling boiling water analogy. I think I've heard you mention it in a couple of your episodes. Yeah. Uh, but that that's that's exactly on point. And we have just just to show the the success of that program. We just uh, as our as of our last board meeting, which was the beginning of June. We just hit ten thousand trained peers that our members are members you or know, voluntarily taking the the peer support training program, and that's you know, it's more than just the two day peer support training program. There's a resiliency component. There's there's financial wellness. There's medical wellness. There's there's so many different um, we'll call them CEUs for for all intents and purposes that that our members are really they can't get enough of this training, and they're they're, they're sopping it up and they're, and they're starting their own peer teams, whether it's local peer teams, state peer teams, or in the district here, we have some fun. We just have some tremendous people doing great work, uh, in the district and in the, in the peer support space. Yeah. I, I talked to a guy who's
0: one one of the main guys with the peer support, uh, Dan Brong from DC, and he had some really good things to say, and I'm happy to hear that, that they're, they're getting after it there. And, and I guess he created a civilian position as a mental health coordinator in the city as well, which
1: is, which is, a gr- I think is a great idea. And I think every department could use that. We see that popping up in a lot of departments. I know my department has a full-time peer coordinator, we have a, a clinician They They work hand in hand with EAP, but they are not in the same office. Don't report to the same individuals. And it's not the same type of, you know, concern where, well, if I go tell the EAP counselor, this, they're going to run to the fire chief and let them know. The, there's a much greater comfort of confidentiality too. Uh, and we've seen it just, just take off in so many departments, uh, even that's at the IFF, we now have five full-time positions that are just in the behavioral health peer space. Uh, we have a, a deputy director of behavioral health resources. We have clinicians and the research institutes that we're partnering with, um, whether it's John Hopkins, university of Florida and others to, study the impact of of love ptsi and firefighters and the causation and the stressors associated with our our job our line of work um that's what we need to continue to do we need to invest in that because you know i i would say next to cancer in the fire service um you know whether it's it's suicide or, or 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 related loss from a behavioral health issue Um, it's, it's the second biggest issue impacting our members. Explain what you mean by a related loss. Um, not really sure.
0: So I'm just curious (laughs) if, if you mean, if that's a way of saying, all right, this is, this is a death that, that maybe if you look at it from the outside, it can be explained away, but it, it might actually be a suicide because I know that these numbers, I don't know it. I, I, I have a feeling, I have a very strong feeling, and I think there's some, some evidence to support it, that, that these suicide numbers are, are, are vastly underreported. Absolutely. And I, and I can't tell you how, by, by how much they're, they're underreported. I I can't give you, I can't hand you data that says here it is, but you look at something and I think I've taken to looking at at news reports and it says, if it says, uh, unexpected loss, I kind of read into that it might have, suicide i have to think that you know uh, and i think that departments are afraid to 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 admit that that members are killing themselves because of of what it could mean to to all right expected changes maybe that there's a monetary component attached to it if if it is connected to a, a, a service disability because of ptsi or ptsd or whatever it is <clears throat> And so I just wonder how underreported, and, and it's not a question you nor I can really answer because it's, it's kind of just a guessing game because of just the way they report statistics.
1: Yeah, you really hit it there. And, and some of the research institutes that I was, I was referencing earlier, the partnerships that we've established in their surveys and in their studies, whenever you do research, there are always limitations to research, oh, the yeah. t- statistical limitations. And they acknowledge that these numbers are absolutely low, uh, and compared to what the true number is, uh, we don't know what that number is, but the underreporting, as you mentioned is it's not only a, a departmental issue, but it's, um, it's a family issue. Many, many families are, are extremely private and, you know, they, while, while some, you know, will, will take a tragedy and embrace it, run with it and try and affect change and educate people. Um, there's, there's different types of grief and other people you know, we'll, and other families will keep that close to the chest and not want that information released. Well, um, talk about a stigma. As the moni- I'm, uh,
0: that's just, that's, that's a stigma right there. Who wants to say, yeah, my son committed suicide?
1: And for us in the fire service now and with law enforcement, uh, I don't want to say fortunately because nothing's ever fortunate, but um, we were successful uh, last year, last August, in getting uh, the public safety officer benefit um, program. Uh, adjusted and modified that, um, suicide as a result of PTSI, um, is a covered PSOB benefit. Um, we're still working on that for cancer, but, uh, to, to have that loss be covered is a, you know, that's a, it's a tremendous benefit for, for the families of those that we have lost.
0: And actually that's a flip side to those underreported numbers too, because they might be underreporting just because of that. If, if, if it's reported as a suicide, they do lose a benefit. Yes. So I, it, and some, for some reason that hadn't, hadn't struck me before as a, as a reason for the under reporting. So sometimes a light bulb goes on in this dim brain sure. of mine. Um, uh, well, related to, to mental health, there are a few things that we, we had on the list as well. And I think that everyone wants to know, how do you change a 56 hour work week? Cause I think that's a big piece of what, what we're seeing right now. This, 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 this allowance of 56 hours to work, it was was implemented at a time where departments weren't running EMS calls like we are today. And so there are engines and medic units that are up all night long for 20, you know, they're hitting it 24 hours. And then if you work in, in my department and, and in this area, quite often it's a day on, day off, day on, day off, day on situation where you're just exhausted by day two or three. So is there a chance and is there a way of, of changing that? And, and how would you do it?
1: So the way we're working on that now, the 56 hour work week, it's actually not a work schedule issue. It's an overtime threshold issue. So the fair labor standards act that governs, uh, you know, labor laws, uh, hours of work compensation. And in the fair labor standards act, there's a, a section referred to as section seven K, which is the work schedule exemption for firefighters and law enforcement. And, uh, in the, in the traditional work world, in the nine to five world with some, with the exception of some exclusions, you are by federal law required to pay time and a half overtime for all hours worked after 40 hours. Um, in the fire service, it's a 56 hour work week or a, you know, 112 hour pay period and so on up to a 28 day work cycle. The 56-hour work week uh, most likely derived in the fire service to the maximum amount of hours that we could have an employee work before we needed to pay them overtime a time and a half. So what our goals and objectives are at the IFF is to change the Fair Labor Standards Act overtime threshold to lower that amount, let's say, to 48. You know, ideally, it would be 40 with the rest of the, the working population, um, especially as you mentioned it. We're busy departments now, we're up all night, you know, we're, we're all hazards agencies responding to more than just, uh, fire alarms, structure fires, and some occasionally EMS calls, you know, uh, our, our departments and fire-based EMS were the frontline emergency services for about 85% of the country. So if we're able to lower that overtime threshold, there's no guarantee that a jurisdiction will change their work schedule to match, but. If we lower that threshold to 48 hours and you're still on that 56 hour work week, that all hours between 48 and 56 are now time and a half overtime. It becomes cost prohibitive for a lot of our jurisdictions and agencies so that it'd be more effective or at least, um, cost neutral to modify that work schedule, put our members on a more healthy work schedule. So they had, they had a better work life balance. We talked about work schedule and sleep and the impact on sleep some of those same studies that studied um, the behavioral health challenges that our members are facing, there is also uh, a sleep study. And I think it said 37% of firefighters uh, across the US that were surveyed aren't getting enough sleep. I say that's ex- an extremely low yeah. number. Yeah. I, I would double that number. I don't know what, what that survey pool was, but th- that's that's really low. But to be able to change that Uh, you know, it could have a tremendous impact on the quality of life of our members. And with that, is there
0: a is there an unseen consequence even talking about changing the 56 hour work week? Or the fit that 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 setup? Because I'm trying to remember what I I made mention of this one time and I got jumped on uh, by by my local guys and they were like, Great, you don't even know what you're talking about. You start messing with that, then you're gonna lose you're going to lose the, the the overtime pay, and then what are you going to what are you going to tell people when that overtime pay goes away? So, is there an unintended consequence in there, and it's just something we we need to work it work within the framework of the fifty six? Or, yeah, I don't is that is that too cloudy of a question, or is it even a question? Th- there is terrible. I,
1: I think I understand where you're going, but if we're able to lower that threshold and make it you know a, a, a fewer, shorter number of hours that. You need to work before you hit that overtime threshold. It'd be really difficult to financially harm somebody because if they have built in overtime now based on the the fifty six hour work schedule, they would certainly have even more at the forty eight hour threshold if it were changed and forty eight is just a i'm I'm kind of saying that as an arbitrary number, but kind of in in unofficial circles we we hear that that's something that could be much more attainable when you look at the the average work schedule across the U S it really hits around that 48 hour work week with the exception of in Nova, you have uh, a lot of 56 hour work week schedules on the west coast. You have some unique schedules, particularly with Cal fire, uh, and some of the like one week on one week off, but most of the fire departments are in some sort of 48 hour work there. You know,
0: you, you hit on in that, in that conversation, what you just had with sleep and I don't know what we can do. I don't know if the union can actually affect any kind of change with sleep because I think it I think it relates to the to the work week um but I also think it 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 kind of relates to the calls that we're running and how do you change can the union play a part in in bringing awareness to the community about how do how do you how do you get that care you need without having to call nine one one
1: sure so, that's a I think all of our jurisdictions, you know, face the the challenge of we'll just call it abuse. It's it's nine one one abuse, EMS abuse, and there's a variety of reasons based on you know who, what, where, when, and why. Um, from that standpoint, we usually rely on our local affiliates to to provide that messaging. We have an entire communications division at the IFF though, with consultants, communications experts, media designers, graphics. We have a a production studio. So we can assist with messaging, but usually the local jurisdiction will define the message because, uh, you know, unlike a lot of other unions where it's a, you know, a top to bottom organization, the IFF is a bottom to top organization with, you know, every card carrying member having actually through their delegates at a convention, having the most, you know, the strongest voice, the most authority in our union. Uh, but unlike the governance structure of some other international unions, our local affiliate affiliates have total local autonomy in their jurisdictions, in their departments, their members at that local level are going to determine what the most important objective is at the time. And our goal and our job is to support that based on the requests that come in through your elected leadership.
0: Another thing that I'm going to piggyback off of there that you mentioned in there is getting the word out to people and, and having a, a, a committee that the communications part. How much has that changed now that you have the younger blood in, in, in the, the international office? Cause I know that it's, it's still a struggle to get that information out to people you know, because I've misspoken before and I've had my guys, my local guys jump on me and go, Hey, you don't know what you're talking about. It's like, well then teach me. Cause I, I've and they were like, well, this is what we did. This is what we did. But I was like, okay, then why don't we know that that's what you did?
1: I think overall, globally, we're our own worst enemy in that regard. Um in terms of not communicating effectively, not just what we are doing, because, you know, we're still in the fire service, you know, it's kind of like, well, we, we play that balance and we struggle with that balance of, you know, you don't high five on a fire ground, you do your job uh, we do it humbly. Most of us or you should, um, I think we, a lot of us carry some of those lessons that we learn in the fire service into our union roles. And some things we probably don't do a great job or a good enough job communicating what we're doing, why we're doing it and what the direct benefit and impact is on you. I think you see that there are some jurisdictions that have phenomenal communications programs that that you you could emulate and others that do a great job communicating externally with the public um, through social media platforms or advertising or other mechanisms. Uh, but overall that that's why we do have, uh, a, a pretty strong communications division at the IFF, a lot of communications training programs too, because we have to do a better job at communicating, not just to our members, but to the communities we represent, to the elected officials and the bean counters that are making the decisions that are impacting the lives of our men and women on the rigs. That was a little tangent. So I appreciate you answering I, I
0: kind of threw that one in on you. Uh, no worries. You also talked about cancer. Uh, and that's a huge topic, and it's even more prevalent today with the, with the this advent of the discussion and the discovery of how bad our gear is for us with PFAS. Um, what what at at your level is the union doing about PFAS?
1: So this is probably the biggest uh, cultural shift and organizational shift that we've seen at the IFF on, on an issue in our history in the last couple of years. You know, obviously cancer and cancer awareness, um, cancer education, passing laws to provide better workers' compensation protections and benefits um, from job-related, occupational-related cancers has been a priority of the IFF for, for some time, as, almost as long as I have been a member. Uh, but, uh, you know, aside from that, the, the feel in terms of what we were doing about it, you know, we had a t-shirt contest. You know, that's really great in October. Uh I'm saying that a little tongue in cheek. Right. But what were we doing to make, you know, generational change in the fire service, uh, proactive change instead of just fighting for the benefits and protections on the back end for our members who ultimately do contract or succumb to cancer. And that's the biggest philosophical shift at the IFF that we took. Um, and PFOS, uh I know you've uh, you recently um, had Diane Cotter yeah. uh, as a guest on on your show, and Quick, for quickly those becoming who, one of
0: my favorite people in the world. By the way,
1: you know many of us as well. She is a she is a tremendous champion uh, for the health and safety of firefighters, particularly specifically as it relates to our personal protective equipment and that it should be free of toxins. And that it needs to be free of toxins, cancer causing agents that are ultimately being absorbed into our members' skin and ultimately killing them. And Diane, several years ago, and I, you know, I'm not going to repeat it because you had her as a host and, uh, as a guest and you, 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 have already heard her story. But, um, one perspective about Diane was that she was a voice in screaming from the mountaintops about this issue. She had the courage to do it when nobody else did, when nobody was listening and she never gave up and she pushed this issue to the IAFF, you know, early on. I know before, uh, before I was an international officer, um, I had just heard about it on the periphery, uh, but no one was really listening to her at that time and, uh, I view Diane as such a tremendous champion for what she's done to not only, you know, sound the alarm and bring this issue to light and awareness of it, uh, but that she, her tenacity, she, ne- she never gave up and, uh, through her advocacy, through her education, through her partnerships, um, with, uh, with, a, there's a film that's been released, uh, a documentary film featuring Diane's fight and her husband, Paul's story uh, titled burned. I, I highly recommend that if, if, uh, anyone hasn't seen it, that they watch this film because it's extremely powerful. Um, and that was a long introduction into how it, uh, it really became an IAFF issue. And when, uh, Ed Kelly assumed the role as general president, uh, you know, we, we sat down, uh, I had the opportunity to chair his transition team. And we made this one of our top issues and we started looking at the exposures that our members are facing and that they're wearing it on their backs every single day. And we knew that something needed to be done and that we were the organization, probably the only organization that could do it, that could, you know, get the ball rolling and affect organizational change or, you know, cultural change, fire service change. So. We looked at the standards uh, of what was allowable in our personal protective equipment, the chemicals that were allowable in our PPE and our PPE is pumped full of the forever chemicals PFAS. And for those who aren't familiar, the PFAS is essentially a a water repellent Uh, that's, it's, it's utilized in that capacity to, to repel water and, you know, keep our PPE you know, as dry as it relatively can be, we we all know it still gets saturated. Um, but to have that in our in our personal protective equipment, we needed to make a change, and that change um, really needs to start with the NFPA by changing their standard um, to not allow for PFAS in personal protective equipment, and to compel the gear manufacturers uh, to make that change to to engage their research arms their research divisions and find alternatives that can accomplish the same or similar objectives as what what Pfas is doing in our gear but uh, at, at a safer rate at a safer level with a safer alternative
0: and so with that because now now we're getting into to occupational cancers and what are you what is the union doing at the, at the international level about presumption laws
1: so presumption laws vary state by state. Um we have with the exception of our federal firefighters, we were enabled we were able to enact various uh presumption benefits uh for for our federal firefighters, but the state legislatures at each individual state govern those laws and they're they're different. They, there's a, a wide array uh of of cancers that, that are protected in in various states in the district and across the IFF. And then there are a couple of states that have little to no benefit. Fortunately, we see over the last five years or so, uh, maybe 10, that, that that is changing, that more states are adopting cancer protections for our firefighters. There's there's additional research uh, that has uh, occurred over the last decade. Uh, the, you know, the IRC, which, you know, it's, uh, it's the World Health Organization, uh, their committee, Have identified, you know, about 13 or 14, I don't know the exact number, 13 or 14 various carcinogens that are directly correlated with firefighting and specific cancers. And having that research and having that declaration of, you know, you know, making firefighting and the chemicals that we're exposed to essentially a a class one top tier carcinogen is really helping, uh, you know, springboard a lot of our state legislatures to take action. It's also helping us at the federal level where we're introducing, uh, to the earlier mentioned public safety officers benefit program to add cancer as a, as a qualified, you know, line of duty death. And that the families of our survivor, the the survivors, the families of, of our fallen, uh, who do succumb to occupational cancer get the benefits uh, that they are entitled to and deserve. So I think it's, you can never say it's an exciting time when you're talking about something as serious as cancer and how many members, friends that that we've lost, but it's exciting of what we're, what we see is the potential of what we're able to accomplish. And we know that that's not going to be an overnight change. And we know that's going to be an expensive change. If you were to replace all of the PPE in one rough shot tomorrow, there's a federal study, it'd be about $4.8 billion to do that. I mean, that's the entire fire service uh, across the United States, career and volunteers. Um, but, you know, to make a long-term change that, you know, for the next generation of firefighters that we can keep them even safer, that's what's exciting of, of what we see on the horizon.
0: Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount, and I appreciate all of you. I have one request, though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. And on this topic, I'd be remiss if we didn't... At least briefly touch on NFPA and, and I, I know that you kind of got to tread lightly here, but sure. what changes can we make to that organization to make it a benefit to us, not a benefit to the special interest or the, to, to what, to the,
1: um, industries? And that, that's the greatest challenge because the structure of the NFPA technical committees, you, you hit the nail on the head with the word special interest. I mean, it's, it's comprised essentially of all special interests. And, uh, one could even argue that the IFF is one of those special interests because we have many of our members that have seats on the technical seat at the table on those technical committees, but really to compel the NFPA to change the standard so that it is not allowable to have toxins in our personal protective equipment that's what we need to do with the NFPA that is the end goal of you know what the IFF is trying to to do with our our recent litigation that has been filed against the the NFPA yeah. <clears throat> excuse me
0: um I also talked to to Kathy Crosby Bell Michael Kennedy's mom and we talked about fire hose as well and the fact that she had to battle the NFPA on this fire hose and they she still really didn't get she got kind of an answer that she wanted but then they they, they rigged it to where it really didn't matter that she got the answer that she wanted. And so that is, it's not just PFAS, obviously it's, it's, there's a, there's a, there's a number of issues that are, they're that probably going to fall into that category. And, you know, it's, it's, we're kind of at the point where you're telling, you have to tell departments it's best that you not pay attention to, to, to certain standards. And, and as I understand it, that's might be the easiest way to do it. If, if, am I wrong there?
1: I'm sorry, repeat that. Well, the standard
0: of saying you have to have this waterproofing in your gear. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's easy for departments to fall back and go, well, the NFPA says we have to have this.
1: Uh, Now I understand. Absolutely. You see, uh, you know, the departments aren't going to be able to make changes because they, they really don't have an alternative. Um, right now there's, uh, there's, there are two gear manufacturers that have just released, um, PFOS free, uh, moisture barriers. Um, and I think we're, those are in the process of being tested to see where, whether it's wear testing to see, you know, has there been any, you know, loss, uh, on other PPE properties that we value, whether it's thermal protection, um, or other hazard protection. Uh, So making sure that you have that balance but you, you hit it, a department's not going to, not only will they not be compelled to make a change, they won't have the ability to make a change unless there is that alternative. And with the NFP, for those who don't want to make that change, uh, especially as costly as it can be, they will fall back on that NFPA standard. And I know there's a,
0: there is a big, I, I'm not going to push the NFPA too, too far because I know you guys have a lawsuit and, and it's, I don't want to set you up for failure on it, sure. but there's, it's interesting to see how this approach is now coming up to, to light about people, or I, I see it on social media and I, I hear it in passing abolish the NFPA abolish. And I'd love to think it's as as simple as going, yeah,
1: abolish the NFPA, but you can't, I mean, you still need standards, no. you know, and, and that's not that that's absolutely not our objective. Our, our objective is to affect change on this issue, uh, and make our firefighters safer that that's the end goal to be able to affect change in that standard. Um, but the, you know, the NFPA does have, you know, tremendous value in many other areas of the fire service and and the standards that we adopt, um, they are, and, you know, we, we transition us to a topic such as staffing. They're the gold standard. When you look at NFPA 1710 to get four people on a fire truck or, or five in some cases in high hazard areas. Uh, so, uh, abolishing the NFPA is absolutely not the answer, and that's probably. I know that's not the message from the IFF. That's probably a, you know an offshoot or social media um, campaign that may be going around by some individuals. Uh, but it's absolutely to affect the change to make sure that you know there there's a balance of the interests, and that one special interest doesn't control the process or have more influence than the other. And that number one, the health and safety of our members are the priority when these standards are being enacted. So let's talk marijuana. Yes. How about that for, for
0: lack of a segue, but a segue nonetheless. Uh, what is the union's stance on marijuana?
1: So it's it's different everywhere. And we talk about local autonomy. So we have a lot of our locals that are doing tremendous work uh, in the marijuana, THC, cannabis space. Um, Pittsburgh firefighters, IFF local one, they, uh, they were one of the first, uh, to actually negotiate into a collective bargaining agreement that, um, medical marijuana was permissible by fire department employees. It was a permitted use. It was, um, they would not be testing for it. Uh, they'd remove it from their higher testing regimen. Uh, and that if you had a medical card from a physician in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, that you are allowed to utilize marijuana products. Um, Other jurisdictions, you know, Prince William County, Virginia, uh, FDNY have removed um, marijuana THC testing from either their annual physical testing, random drug testing, if it does exist, um, because of various laws that have been enacted, whether it's in the, the state of Virginia or, you know, in the city of New York, that allow for utilization of not only medical, but recreational marijuana. Which also, I'm sitting here in Maryland. Tomorrow's July 1st. Uh, a state law change that recreational marijuana uh, is legal and allowable in Maryland as well. So we are seeing a, you know, a, a wave of jurisdictions that are are really starting to to look at this and you know get out of this antiquated mindset of you know that that marijuana is bad. Uh, particularly, you know, it has tremendous potential and tremendous utilization uh, benefits for our members. And what I like to to point to and highlight when we're, you know, educating whether it's a decision maker, an elected official, a fire chief, somebody who sat through too many deer classes when they were growing up that they just have this negative stigma associated with marijuana. My response to that is. Uh, you know, it correlates back to the sleep conversation. I don't know a firefighter that can sleep before their shift or at least sleep well. Um, and so what do they do? They're either taking, you know, five melatonin's or two Advil PMs, uh, uh and they're waking up in the morning and they're groggy for three or four hours rather than alternatives that are available, um, such as marijuana products to help with sleep. Uh, we talk about it in the in the space uh, of ptsi and pts uh, and the properties and the benefits and value that that marijuana have for our members that are suffering from ptsi ptsd uh, so I, I i think breaking down the stigma is uh, our greatest challenge but it's uh, it's our focus because uh, and 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 i i almost failed to mention it but most importantly uh, opio- the opioid pandemic, the opioid epidemic, the, the addictions that are that are associated with opioid use um, and our members that are that are actually overdosing on opioid products that are actually dying from overdoses of those products. I know there's a, there's there aren't situations where members are, are overdosing or are utilizing marijuana or marijuana related products uh, that are causing them harm. So those are the things that we really need to look at and affect that culture change because it is it's it, it, it needs to be talked about more it's a It's a better safer alternative to what so many of our members uh, are currently doing for whether it's their their physical ailments or the behavioral ailments that that they may have. And i'll I'll dip my toe further into that
0: conversation sure. and And everyone that has ever listened to me or read anything about me is knows that I'm a proponent of psychedelics for, for therapies as well. And I know there's been some movement on things like ketamine. Um, and then if you look at um, oh, and maps, I'm not even going to destroy the name, but the acronym is Maps. and they're doing a lot of research with with LSD mushrooms, uh, psychedelics mm-hmm. for treatment of PTSD and other traumatic, um, would we'll go with brain injuries cause that's what they are. Um, would the, would the international ever get into advocating for something like that for firefighters as well?
1: I think with the sciences there, we absolutely have to look at that. We have to look at, you know, all the alternatives because we, you know, we developed this toolkit and put on a lot of education and investment in the, in opioid addictions and, you know, the opioid crisis that are impacting our members. We need to look at not just one alternative, but, but multiple alternatives. And you hear probably one of the things that we have to, you know, address and fight the most is, oh, you want your firefighters high at work? That's not what this is about. This is uh, no different than any other medication that's used to, to treat a condition. Uh, my response to uh, uh, a chief that may be concerned, how do we test for this? You, you don't. You don't test for opioids now if you have a prescription our member blows out their back and they get a prescription from their doctor for way too many opioids. You know, if you you take it, you're, I don't know many, if any, if anyone's taking it while at work because it will impair you, but on their off days or their nights before their shift, they absolutely are because it's a prescribed medication um, that they're utilizing for treatment. And my response to, uh, to a chief or an elected official would be that if a member who is on duty who is legally prescribed opioid takes a test, whether it's a random drug test or a post-accident test or a physical test, on their work shift, they are going to test positive for opioids. It will be in their system. It doesn't mean that they're under the influence of it at that time. And they need to take that same mentality and thought process for marijuana, THC, cannabis use. Uh, it's it's just going to be that that light bulb needs to go off and that, that culture shift um, at the management level. But I think, you know, in many of our jurisdictions, you're doing great things in this space. I know, you know, some of your colleagues, uh, not only our locals uh, that I mentioned, but some of your colleagues in the in, in the streaming world, like, um, you know, Five After Midnight and a couple of other podcasts are, are really highlighting this issue and doing great work in this space. And the more that this conversation is had, uh, I think the the faster we're going to see that cultural shift. Can the international get involved at lobbying in the federal level? So I, I think where, what our discussion and our focus is geared towards is reducing it from a schedule one narcotic. If you reduce it way down onto the spectrum, if it's, if it's still going to have some sort of, uh, you know, narcotic classification, the Schedule One issue is really what is a hindrance, and you know, jurisdictions are concerned about grant funding and having w- what type of tolerance policies they need to have. That is where our focus uh, really is going to lie. Uh, if we can get that reduction in the schedule of narcotics, and that's something that our you know our government team, our lobbying team is absolutely looking at. Yeah, that Schedule One is such a killer. It, I mean, it it just
0: automatically makes it enemy number one or public enemy yeah. number one in, in people's eyes. And it's, it's, and it goes back to what you said. It's antiquated. It, it, it is just a, it's a view that doesn't need to be had anymore. And, and it's, I think it's so much more about education than anything.
1: And we, we absolutely agree. We're actually, you know, looking at it, it's a little more difficult to partner right now with the legal prohibitions with, for our, with organizations, for our active members that are on the job, because they're so many different states and jurisdictions that have you know a variety of policies, but you know, we're we're looking at really trying to provide some support for our retirees in this in this realm because they don't have those same stipulations or prohibitions because they're no longer on the job in a public safety capacity that you know at a minimum if we could start with our retirees um, who I arguably would wouldn't benefit from from it as as much if not more than our active members. Uh, that's really something that we could use to springboard how we move forward. Speaking of of
0: retirees, let's let's get on a different topic again. Uh, health insurance for retirees how how do we fix that?
1: So lowering the Medicare, uh the Medicare age uh, down from uh, down you know at fifty five or below that's something that legislatively we look at. But there's no one size fits all for healthcare. I know you know my jurisdiction and your jurisdiction we have two different healthcare programs for in retirement. Uh, I and mean, there's really not a one size fits all. So that's the greatest challenge. So one thing that we have done at the IFF, we have a subsidiary uh, that we call the IFF Financial Corporation. Mm-hmm. It is a separate corporation. It is not run uh, by members dues, uh, but they also run our IFF Foundation. And what the IFF Financial Corporation, that their primary focus has been how do we have greater access to not only just general health care, but better health care for our retired members? And what you're starting to see pop up at the international level from medical trusts and health care trusts that locals or jurisdictions can adopt to provide health care for retirees to, you know, unique customized programs by some of the larger health insurance providers for retirees to, you know, bring the cost down of health care. Because if you have to just without any help, any benefit, go out on the open market as a retiree uh, and get healthcare, it's, it, it's crippling in some ways it's, it's not, it's not affordable, it's not sustainable. So from our retiree space, that is absolutely the number one issue for the IFF, lowering the, the eligibility for, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, and absolutely finding cheaper, better healthcare alternatives for our members in retirement. Some of that can be done at the local level, but we realize that it's such a great challenge that it we need to be able to provide something like a you know a one stop one size fits all benefit for our members that don't have access to healthcare and retirement.
0: Yeah, and then I guess the question becomes how big of a
1: of an apparatus
0: does that need to be? Because that's a massive undertaking to to think of it that way.
1: It is, and that's why you know we actually have to wind up partnering with with national or international you know, healthcare provider firms, insurance firms, because we can't do it on our own. Even, a like a medical trust, you need a third party administrator just because it's such a monster, such a behemoth. We just wouldn't have the resources or the personnel to be able to administer something like that. No, it just seems so It it's, it's a
0: daunting issue. Just, I mean, a number of these things are just daunting issues that you just have to kind of pick apart, I suppose. Absolutely. Let's see. I'm trying to think of what, it, what oh, the, the question that, that I said to you that I wanted to talk about and a coworker of mine gave me, and you and kind of made you start to think right away, was this gold standard, this idea of a gold standard for fire departments. Do you see something out there that you can look at a department and go, that's
1: what we all need to emulate. How do we get there? I would say no globally, like uh, as uh, for an organization as a whole. I, I can't think of a of a gold standard department that they just get everything or most things right. Um, uh, you know, they all have their nuances. Uh, they're all very unique. Um, but what I, what I can say is that there are certain things that departments are the gold standard, whether it's a, a behavioral health program, taking care of their members, whether it's safe staffing, whether it's a, a healthier work schedule and they're there or what their leadership looks like. Because you could have something that one may consider a gold standard for a department and they could have a change in leadership and that could end overnight uh, because, you know, the leadership at the top really, you know, drives that train and defines, you know, the direction of that department and, and how it's going to operate. And, you know, it, 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 it's amazing how, uh, how, uh, how a wonderful fire EMS department uh, um, can essentially be ruined by a bad fire chief bad administrator, bad manager. Um, but in, you know, in the region, if you want to look at uh, who are doing great things, uh, I mentioned the behavioral health space. Uh, I think the gold standards in behavioral health are are still uh, FDNY with the FDNY Counseling Unit and the Phoenix, Arizona Fire Department and their behavioral health programs. They are tremendous. In, um, in 2016, uh, when... Uh, I serve as the local president in my, my home local Prince George's County. We had a um, we had a very tragic line of duty death when uh, we lost uh, John Olmschneider, who we affectionately referred to as Skillet. Um, he was shot and killed while responding to a medical emergency uh, um, in the south part of our county, and in the aftermath of that, uh, in addition to you know supporting the uh, Skillet's family and the the members who were on that incident, that's when it really came to light in our department that we really didn't have any effective support resources for our members who were in crisis. We had EAP and that was it. Um, we didn't even have an effective system model to help respond to that incident. And that's when we looked at the peer support model in Prince George's County, Maryland. Uh, and we uh, we have a phenomenal group of individuals that are passionate, uh, about, uh, you know, taking care of the behavioral health of our members. Um, our, our team is, is outstanding. I'm, ex- I'm extremely proud of them. There are, there are over 70 of them that are actively engaged in providing peer support to our members, but who we looked at to build up that team was the FDNY counseling unit at Phoenix. And, you know, all programs will change over time, but I would say that those two, those two departments are the gold standard. When it become when it comes to behavioral health, when it comes to staffing, and I refer to apparatus staffing more, you look towards more of your you you more of our municipal departments or our larger jurisdictions that actually have the ability to put four firefighters on a rig. Um, and I could speak from when I started in my jurisdiction that I was assigned to a a firehouse as a, as a single career firefighter. Uh, with an engine, a ladder truck, uh, and an ambulance, the my job was to get whatever out the door, um, and that was that was not in the in the distant past. So to transform from a a, a essentially a, a driver only type of model, which I I see you nodding, I'm sure you've seen it in, in your jurisdiction as well over the years, and your your jurisdiction has changed and grown um, to a to a fully staffed, uh, you know, four person on a rig fire department is a, is, a is a tremendous feat that we're seeing in many of our, many of our jurisdictions. But that staffing increase comes at a cost. Yes. And our, our jurisdictions aren't keeping up with the hiring for that demand for service, whether it's increasing staffing, whether it's, you know, growth, whether it's the decline of the volunteer fire service, and they're not able to provide the fire protection that they used to be able to provide. But without adequate hiring and the need for additional staffing, uh, our existing members are forced to carry the burden of that entire workload, which translates into mandatory overtime, forced overtime, holdovers. Um, And in just the region alone, my department included, that is the number one issue that's affecting the quality of life of our members. Uh, when we talk about our members going home at the end of their tour, we talked about that, you know, from a health and safety and physically actually going home and not getting injured or killed. Uh, now we're also talking about that in the space of, we legitimately don't know if our members will be able to get off work at the end of their tour. Um, and the impact that that's having not only on their physical health and, and mental health, but their family lives, their relationships, you know, divorce rates are higher, financial issues. It's, I would say it is the issue of the day. Um, uh, and that's the issue of the day is an understatement. It's not, not a powerful enough statement for how big of a problem this is for our members.
0: And I think that we find ourselves in a catch 22 because then we're we're, we're rushing to hire and we're, we're, I don't maybe not lowering the standards, but I think in some cases we're turning a blind eye to a couple of things, and we're accepting some things that we wouldn't have accepted in the past. Uh, I can I can speak from own experience of watching people come in late for a CPAT or not show up for a CPAT, but being given the, a time slot later in the week to go ahead and come in and do it again, or or give another shot to come in on time, or or excusing that they're thirty minutes late and letting them test anyway. That's stuff we would not have seen in the past.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and that that's that balance and that struggle, because when you're on your, you know, your 48th hour at work or 24 hours of a forced overtime hold, you know, by that, you know, by that 47th or 48th hour, you really don't care who's coming in to relieve you and what skill set they have or what competency level they have, just that there is a body there to replace you so you can go home. And well, I, I understand that mentality, but it's a dangerous one for us to have. So as we
0: get to the end of this and we're kind of wrapping up a little bit, what are the, I'd say, let's go with the top three goals, maybe that you have personally for the organization or that the
1: organization has identified in in the next few years. I think that we absolutely need, we, we talked about it earlier. We need to do a better job, uh, communicating with our members. And that's just not communicating out to our members. That's not just telling you what we're doing or what you know, we think you want us to be doing on your behalf. Um, it needs to be that two-way feedback. We need to listen to our members. We need to, you know, survey our members. And I, I don't want to say it in you know, kind of a, a cheesy, just catch-all term when I say survey, but really get meaningful feedback from our members about, you know, what's important to them. And what are their expectations of us? Um, So I think that that transcends across all of our issues at the international that we need to do a better job communicating out and in with our membership so we know the direction to go in the future. So, you know, it's not just 18 of us sitting around a table making the decisions uh, on your behalf. We need to make those decisions in an informed manner. So communications would definitely be um one of it. Um the other thing is that and that we've seen regionally and that we're expanding we need to continue to be more proactive rather than reactive in the medical conditions that are facing our members and how we detect that and how we support that. Um we've recently over the last couple of years um, partnered with, uh, several organizations, one in particular UDS, United Diagnostic Services, who provides medical and cancer screening for our members. And the number of cancers or other medical conditions that are being caught early that never would have been caught is staggering. It's, um, it's something that we need to push out and change when we talk about changing standards that, you know, the, the mm-hmm. medical physical standard for our members that are outlined in NFPA 1582, we need to change that standard to include ultrasound, blood work, diagnostic, preventative, proactive cancer and medical screening. Um, We need to catch it early rather than spending more of our time and energy focusing on what we can do for the members or their families after they contract or they succumb to an occupational cancer or other illness. So that would be too. Um, and then for me personally, I I think that we do. We touched on it a little bit, but we need to redefine our political program, our our political brand, because you know everything happens at the political level. It's it. Nobody likes it. Everybody hates politics. It's, it feels dirty. It is dirty sometimes, but it's really the nature of the beast. The, it's the it's the hand we've been dealt. And the people that are making the decisions, um, we need to make sure that they're informed and we get as many of them on our side. And the way we do that is through endorsements and other support. But it's very hard to do that when you don't really have our membership on board in the same direction. Many of our members say or think that their dues money are used for political purposes. They aren't. We have a separate arm. uh, It's our fire pack. Which are voluntary contributions. It's actually illegal by the federal government to utilize members dues money for political contribution to candidates. Uh, so that all comes from Firepac, which is that separate branch. But letting our members know that, and you know, at least soliciting more feedback in those political endorsement process. That I think that's key. We need to we need to change that process and that brand almost because so many of our members do identify the iaff as their identity and when we would make an endorsement uh, that's contrary to the other personal beliefs of a member to say who are you to do that to take my identity away that's my brand too that's that's my iaff too and you know i i ride around with the iff truck uh, sticker on the back of my truck and You know, people are going to see that and they see who we endorse. And that doesn't associate all the time with their other values. So giving our members more of a voice in that process, but also educating members more about why we make the endorsements that we do. Yeah. That education
0: piece is so huge because that's exactly it. I, I'm going to, I'll admit to right now that I didn't realize that there's a fire pack. And I, you do hear it. You, you, you sit around the station and, and the, the, the international endorses a candidate or even the local endorses a candidate that doesn't align with everybody's thoughts and values when it comes to say 2A or whatever it is. And, and I'm an outlier in a, in a, in my firehouse, I have different beliefs than, than many of the other people in my firehouse. And I still don't always agree with the choices, but you know, I never realized in, in what well, where I was getting to is that you do hear them go. I'm not paying for those people to endorse them, but now you kind of get that word out. That goes back to that communication part because I had no idea that there was a fire pack, and and so that that's interesting to hear. That's that's actually good
1: to hear because that is it, it, there's a difference there. Another education piece about the the politics, and we I know this wasn't a a conversation around our politics, but that that's a good highlight is we are the most bipartisan fire pack. Uh, of any other labor organization, we contribute to the most uh, Republican candidates. It's about thirty-seven percent. It teeters based on the year, but that's that's about the benchmark. Because there's always this stigma that you know we have unions always and only support Democrats, right? And that is you know that's not the case. Uh, I could I could point to an example that uh, you know recently uh, retired through term limits, uh, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan a Republican governor, probably one of the greatest champions that that we've had in the fire service or firefighters uh, in decades, the work that he did in terms of not only um, support for our programs, but, you know, uh, for cancer presumption and expanding that and even supporting collective bargaining. It's very rare you hear of a of a Republican governor supporting collective bargaining, but they are out there. And those are the ones that we form relationships because At the end of the day, you know, we're just going to look for who's going to support firefighters. So that's an important education piece as well.
0: I'm going to hit you with a different question that we didn't cover. Uh, And it goes back to you, the reason why you ran for office. You said you ran for office because you wanted new blood. You recognize that the the, the people at that level were becoming, for lack of a better word, maybe stayed and and, and old. Uh, How will you be able to
1: recognize or will you be able to recognize when it's your turn to step aside? So that's really interesting because I'm dealing with that now in my local jurisdiction. Um, I have been the president of Prince George's County's local union for uh, almost 15 years. And when I was, uh, when I first was elected to local president, I was the rank of technician, which is an engineer apparatus operator. Uh, And I'm now a a battalion chief. I promoted through the ranks while I concurrently held the, the union role, but our union position, we are very rarely in the field, uh, on a rig we're, we're assigned to work in our capacity as union leaders. We will occasionally pick up some overtime or details, but our, our role is, you know, we're in an office where we're, we're kind of riding a desk to an extent, um, recognizing that when the time to step down is so important for any leader, whether it's a, a union officer at a local level, international level, even a fire chief, uh, in any organization. And so many people failed to do that. I knew, um, you know, at my last term, this I'm, I'm in my last term of office, but right before my last term, um, I was not going to run for my position again, because I knew that I'm so many years out of the field. And as much as I try, and as much as I surround myself with great people and great teams that, will try and help keep me grounded and keep me in touch with what's going on. There's nobody better that knows what's going on than you know, the people that are still riding the rigs and the challenges that are being faced. And the further you get away from that, uh, it's just natural, you're going to lose touch. Um, it, uh, we have many leaders that do a great job of finding ways to stay in touch, but it's important to know when the time is right to step down. And that's, uh, I realize that at my local level, We have a great team. I have, you know, uh, great members in our organization that will be able to step up and we'll be able to pass the torch. We've we've really focused on succession planning, but, you know, organizations that don't focus on succession planning or leaders that, you know, can't get out of the way of their own egos, uh, that's a detriment for all of us. So knowing when to step down and step aside is important. Um, I've recognized that at the local level. And I'm sure when the time comes at the international level, I'll do the same.
0: It's interesting because uh, the difference between your state, Maryland, and my state, Virginia, is that you get to focus on that job as a union leader. Where my my guy, Mitch Mitch Nason, who who is just busting his ass for Prince William County and for for our local, he has to ride a rig every every other day on a tour and do this job, and and it's just it's. I give a shout out because he's one of those guys who actually talk about, uh, cancer detection. He's one of the fought for, for screenings here for us. And he's still trying to fight for that. Um, but to, to imagine that workload while trying to do that and the union side of it, it's just, it's kind of crazy to me.
1: It's, it's staggering. And you, you, you hit it. Mitch is, the, is a rock star and the, what, what he's done, not only in Prince William, but in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, um, <clears throat> Mitch has a great team. You've got a great executive board. Um, Paul Hebert before Mitch as well. Um, These guys have done tremendous work, but they've been doing it while on the rig, while getting mandatory, while trying to have a family as well. Right. Uh, I know many of us on this side of the river are are more fortunate that we we have that ability to work in that capacity full time. But that is the exception and not the rule. Most of our most of our leaders across the country are doing it day in and day out without having that benefit.
0: All right. I'm going to hit you with the last couple of questions. I hit everybody with, if if you're willing to answer them, I'm going to throw kind of a a curveball at you. I want to know what the last song is you heard.
1: The last song that I heard, and I actually have it, uh, just so I don't get it wrong. It was, I heard it on the way into the office this morning. It was, um, it's actually, uh, pretty fitting. It was a cover by Chris Cornell. Okay. Uh, and you know, um, that, uh, you know, Chris Cornell was, was lost to suicide in, um, in, in 2017. And he did a, a Prince cover yes. on, I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. Nothing compares to yeah. you. Yeah. And it is a powerful, phenomenal version of the song. And that, that is the last song that I heard, uh, on the way into work this morning. That I, I, I like that choice. I like that one. That's perfect. All right. So. What's an
0: everyday carry for you? What's something you carry that you walk around with, and or if you walk around without,
1: you feel naked? Well, unfortunately, it's my phone because in this yeah. day and age, the phone, the phone is the office. Um, I don't really have anything else that I carry from day to day. I I, I it's hard to get into a, a routine as well. You know, I try, you know, like everybody else, uh, a wellness routine, try and take care of myself. You know easier said than done uh uh, unfortunately what i carry every day that phone though it's it's kind of hard to to get away from that what about a book you have a book suggestion you can offer the audience something
0: that i don't know it can just be entertainment or it can be something that brings more value more educational
1: value i'd actually say it has nothing to do with the fire service um and it is a a farewell to arms by ernest hemingway okay it is uh, i'm looking at it right now it's sitting on my shelf Uh, i i think it's uh a, a literary masterpiece. Uh, I think everyone should, should read it. Um, and it, you know even though it, it is, um, it's not related to the fire service, it's related to, uh, has some military background, you know, world war one background. Um, and just, uh, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a masterful piece. Any parting words you want to offer up? Well, you know, I just, My parting words are really to to you and to thank you for for what you're doing i've listened to to many of your episodes and the issues that you're tackling um without your voice um and other voices in your space that are doing this work uh so many of these issues wouldn't be talked about uh, and they wouldn't be out there and because of your efforts and your advocacy it's not just people like us that are watching there are fire chiefs that are watching there are managers that are watching elected officials that are seeing this and you know if you could just change one mind on one of these important issues on the wide array of tremendous issues you bring to light you know you're doing tremendous things for us so I'm it's just an honor to be here with you and to be on your show and uh I just thank you for the work you're doing
0: well, I appreciate it. I don't know if it's if it's deserved of those words, but I do appreciate the words. Thank you very much. Um, Absolutely, well, I appreciate the time. I know it was a long time coming. We danced around the date for a while there, and, and luckily we got it scheduled. So I appreciate your
1: time this morning. Thank you very much, Zach. Go enjoy the rest of your day, sir. You too. You be safe, bro. All right. Take care. We're out. Thank Thanks for listening to another
0: episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.